This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, When All Has Been Heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good afternoon. Am I too loud? No? Sounds good? Great. It is 4.15, I think, exactly. So, I don't know about you, but I like to start on time and end on time. How do you guys feel about that? You like starting on time and ending on time? Okay. Praise the Lord, because I think that's what we're going to do anyway. Um, let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. We thank you, Lord, for bringing this group of people together to learn about how to reach this neglected class, the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated. Lord, impress upon our heart how much you love them. Impress upon our hearts how much you desire for your people to reach them. And Lord, I pray that someone here might hear something that would motivate, equip, and empower them to go forward from this place with just another tool, another method, another technique that they can use to reach this neglected class. We pray for the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and minds, to keep our attention, to keep us focused. And we pray this in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. So welcome. Keep on coming in. Keep on coming in. My name is David Kim. I'm a corporate executive, but really I'm a Bible worker. And God uses my company to pay me. So we all win. And that's really... I'm very serious about that. That is how I live my life today. Now, up here in the front, just a few logistics. This is my email address, if you'd like to get in touch with me. David at NicodemusSociety.org. Second, this link here, if you go to our website, NicodemusSociety.org, there's a link where you can get updates. What that means is you can join our email distribution list and be informed of resources and events as we develop them. The second part of that is if you don't have your device here, my daughter, Claire, who will be assisting me, she will be passing around an iPad that you can use to sign up for the email distribution list as well. Of course, you don't have to. Uh, it's all free will. But if you'd like to stay in touch with us, that is available to you. I would also like to um, introduce my ministry partner, Cynthia Nojima. If you would stand up, please, Cynthia. Cynthia and I met after I presented a similar seminar at GYC 2013. And providentially, it's, it's very interesting, she and I actually worked for the same company although at different times. And so we share a lot in common. And uh, upon learning about this ministry, uh, we decided to work together and really address this neglected class. And so 
One, I want to just introduce you to her because she's a super talented person who's working with me on this, uh, on this ministry. And two, I have an appointment immediately after this seminar. Ordinarily, I like to stay and chat and, and talk with everybody. I'm going to apologize in advance that I can't do that because I do have to leave right after, but I would offer to you two things. One is uh, Cynthia can answer just about any question you have, if not more than I can answer. So that's one. And two, you can also come to our booth uh, tonight, and I'll be there. Cynthia will be there, and we'd, be, we'd love to talk with uh, all of you. So those are some logistics. I think the last thing I will say is I ordinarily do this in a three-hour seminar. Now, GYC has asked me to do a one-hour version, and so you are going to get the one-hour version, which necessarily means that we will have to be quick and we'll have to um, not go as deep in certain areas as I normally would. Uh, however, I pray that you will get something out of this. I'm, I'm certain that you will get something out of this. And, uh, but I, I just want to let you know that uh, this is not the full, this is not the full um, message that you are receiving today. Um, that said, I do like to keep things interactive. So if you have questions, I'd invite you to ask your questions, raise your hand. Uh, I may answer it on the spot. I may ask you to hold it for a future part of the presentation, or I may just say, hey, um, great question. Unfortunately, we don't have time right now, but maybe come see us at the booth. So if that sounds good to you, I'd, I'd love to entertain your questions. All right, so today we are going to hit three topics. First is, who are the W3s, the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated, three Ws? Who are the W3s and why should we care? Believe it or not, there have been times when I've presented this seminar and people have actually asked me, why should we care about these people? And so hopefully by the end of the seminar, you'll understand why we should care about these people. The second is, I will share with you a broad framework about how we reach the W3 class. And then third, we're going to go a little bit deeper on a particular element of the method, and that is spiritual conversations. And so those are the three things we're going to talk about today. There's much more, as I said, but those are the three things we will cover. First, we'll start by defining our terms. The first W is the wealthy. And if you think about the wealthy, you can define it in many ways, but uh, the top 25% of household income in the United States is one way to define it. And this is roughly people who make a six-figure income, over $100,000 household income. And that is approximately 78 million people in the United States. 78 million people. So this is not a niche thing. This is a large mission field. In fact, 78 million people would make this group a top 20 country of the world by population all by itself. It would be similar to the population of Turkey, for example. So this is a large group. Now, amongst Seventh-day Adventists, only 7% of Seventh-day Adventists fall into this income demographic. Only 7%. And so we're very much outnumbered. So for every one Seventh-day Adventist W3, there are 928 non-Seventh-day Adventist W3s. So 928 to 1. Those are some long odds, are they not? 
so if every single one of you here in this room were to reach 928 people, I think we'd be in good shape. Now, one question you might have is, why is it so low for Seventh-day Adventists? Why is it 25% of the population, but only 7% of Seventh-day Adventists? And there are a variety of reasons for this. Uh, there is a, a career mix difference. Uh, Adventists, on average, choose careers that are perhaps less lucrative than the world, and I think we would, uh, we would expect that. But one of the largest drivers of this, interestingly enough, is age. The church in North America is older than the average of the population. And so if you think about uh, a lot of the people in their prime earning years, call it 30s, 40s, early 50s, a lot of those people, I'm sure you know by experience, a lot of those people don't actually come to church. And so they're not as part of the church, even though they may have grown up in the church. And that's part of this ministry is how can we strengthen that community within our church? But the second thing is that Christianity in general tends to be an older skewing population relative to the uh, overall demographics and we see that in our church. And so you have a disproportionate number of retirees who are not in their peak earning years. And so that is one of the largest contributors to the fact that although it's 25% of the population in terms of top 25% household income, only 7% of Seventh-day Adventists fall into that group. The worldly, we can talk about, you know, it's not a demographic per se. It's not something you fill out on a survey or a census form. But some of this imagery from, uh, from magazines, I think, serve to illustrate what we mean by worldliness. It means a focus on wealth, a focus on fame, a focus on celebrity, a focus on consumption, a focus on intellectualism. There are a whole range of things that can become a worldly idol to people. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about worldliness or the worldly. Then the well-educated. 33, that represents the percentage of, of, of people over this age of 25, I believe, per percentage of people over the age of 25 in the United States who have a bachelor's degree or greater, 33%. Now, would anyone care to guess whether that number for Seventh-day Adventists is higher, lower, or the same? Higher? Who else says higher? Who, who says higher? Who says lower? And who says we're the same as the general population? Wow, so I think some of you may have read my presentation. In fact, it is higher. About 55% of Seventh-day Adventists have a bachelor's degree or later, uh, or, 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 or more, which is interesting given the income data that we just saw, because generally speaking, education and income go together. But in our case, we have uh, this strange relationship between the degree of education and the degree of income. And I think it goes back to some of these other things we've said about age, uh, career mix, uh, life preferences uh, that happen. And so because we're actually overrepresented relative to the general population, that ratio is actually more favorable. It's 129 to 1 when you think about college, bachelor's degree, or greater. So we're in a little bit better shape 
So maybe if you can't handle the 928, maybe you could handle reaching out to 129. Now, I want to talk a little bit about why this class is so difficult to reach. And in business school, you always have acronyms, preferably alliteration. And so we have the five Ps, the five Ps representing the key stumbling blocks for the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated. The first one comes from the story of the rich young ruler. Do we all remember the story of the rich young ruler? Amen? Amen. Amen. This is GYC, of course. There are many Bible scholars in the group, I'm sure. And so the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what, what do I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. And he says, all these I have kept since my childhood. What more do I lack? And then Jesus says to sell all your goods, give to the poor, and come follow me. And what was his reaction? He walked away sorrowfully, for he had many possessions. So the first P are the possessions that the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated have. There are more seats up front, and I think I see some seats sort of towards the sides, and maybe if people would be willing to move in uh, to make room, uh, that would be very kind. And it is the Sabbath, after all. <laughs> so the first P is uh, possessions. Now we turn to King Herod. King Herod, of course, who cut off the head of John the Baptist. Now, did King Herod want to cut off the head of John the Baptist? No, no he did not. In fact, I, I don't know that I would call him a disciple, but we know from the scriptures that he actually enjoyed listening to John the Baptist. Now, nonetheless, he did cut his head off after the request was made. He said to his daughter, who had uh, made that dance, up to half the kingdom I will give you. Just name your prize. And she said, I want the head of John the Baptist. And although he did not want to do it, he did it anyway for two reasons. Because of those, because of the oaths he had made and those who sat around him. And so those are the next two Ps. We have the prestige, the oaths he had made, because when he says something like, up to half the kingdom I will give you, he's really boasting. He's saying, look at me, I'm all that. I can give you up to half my kingdom and it wouldn't even leave a mark. And so that prestige, and then the peers, because all of, his, all of his henchmen and cronies and all these governors and things, they were all sitting around. And because of his peers and the prestige that he had staked in front of everybody, he was not willing to obey. And then we come to King Agrippa. King Agrippa, as you may remember, heard the case of Paul. Uh, when Paul was being deported, if you will, to Rome. And so Paul took that opportunity to share the gospel and to share his testimony with King Agrippa. And at the end, Paul makes an appeal. And he says, do you believe, King Agrippa? I know that you believe. And then, does anyone remember what King Agrippa said? He said, you almost persuade me to be a Christian, which means, of course, that he was not persuaded at that time. You almost, pers uh, you almost persuade me. And so procrastination is the fourth P, because when you are a W3, oftentimes you can feel invincible. You can feel the world is your oyster. 
You can feel that everything is going great. And why disrupt the party? Why do this today? There's a young woman who I, uh, at my work, who I study the Bible with for, I think, about six months. And all the while, she was nodding and saying, yes, this makes sense. Yes, I agree. This, this really resonates with me. And at a certain point, I made an appeal. And I said, will you accept this message and join God's remnant church? And she said to me that she believes in all that I've told her, but she does not want to make that decision now. And I asked her why. Why don't you want to make this decision now? And she said to me, I have many things that I want to do in my life and in my career. And I feel that if I were to accept this message today, it would essentially cramp my style. It would get in the way. It would interfere with my ability to pursue the things that I want to per pursue. And so she procrastinated. Now, we are not, uh, we are not promised tomorrow, uh, yet she made that decision. But praise the Lord, God is not finished with her. Because after we, began, after we finished our studies, she found herself a boyfriend. She found herself a boyfriend at Harvard Business School. And she and her boyfriend were talking one day about uh, spiritual things, getting to know each other. And he asked her, do you have a, a faith? Do you have a religious practice that you follow? And she said to him, well, I don't. In fact, this young woman grew up as an atheist in Holland. And if you know anything about Western Europe, those are some real atheists out there. And so she grew up as an atheist in Holland, but she said to this man, she said, her, her boyfriend, she said, uh, I don't have a religion. I grew up as an atheist. But if I were to select a religion or select a preference or express a preference, I think that I would choose Seventh-day Adventist. Amen. Praise the Lord. And the boyfriend had a very surprised look on his face. She didn't know quite what to make of it. And then he said to her, well, isn't that interesting? Because I was raised Seventh-day Adventist. <laughs> so God is not done. And that's one of the things that we have to learn in this work, is that it does not work on our time. This is not a work in which we have people attend 30 meetings and then we fill up the bathtubs or the baptistries or the swimming pools or the stadiums. This is a long-term work and it requires patience and we can talk more about that. But pro procrastination is the fourth P. And of course the fifth P is pride, which undergirds all of these things. Because pride is at the center of all of these behaviors around possessions, peers, prestige, and procrastination. Now, let's turn to what the spirit of prophecy has to say about this, about this uh, topic. And does anyone know what a whortleberry is? No? No one knows what a whortleberry is? Well, I didn't know what a whortleberry is either. Uh, but it's, it's like a blueberry, but instead of being white inside, it is red. So now you know what a whortleberry is. And she had a vision on September 29th, 1886. And it, uh, actually, let me set, the, set up the vision first. So in this vision, there's a large group of fellow believers going out to the, uh, what she kind of feels like the outskirts of town. 
And they were going to a whortleberry orchard. I guess you would call it an orchard. I don't know really what you call that. Grove, maybe, a grove or an orchard of, of whortleberries. And their job, their mission that day was to pick whortleberries. And she writes of how, uh, how diligently she was working at picking these whortleberries, but her, her, um, her fellow believers, they were enjoying the day, they were enjoying the weather, they were resting, they were eating their picnic lunches. They were doing some whortleberry picking, but not nearly with the, the intensity and focus that she was. So now we pick up the story. I, referring to Ellen White, I then took my berries and went to the wagon. Said I, this is the nicest fruit that I've ever picked, and I gathered it close by while you have wearied yourselves by searching at a distance without success. Then all came to look at my fruit, said they. These are high bush berries, firm and good. We did not think we could find anything on the high bushes, so we hunted only for low bush berries, and we have found only a few of these. Now, what could she mean by this? The good news is that she interprets it for us. So let's turn to that. I am sure that the dreams that I have had of late teach me lessons that there is a neglect to get the better classes to become interested. While the poor classes are not to be neglected, neither should the higher and more intelligent classes be overlooked. I have been in dreams instructed that we overlook the fields close by to us to labor in far away fields, and we pick very inferior berries when there are larger and a better quality of berries already to be gathered. And we are making a mistake in this kind of labor. It's pretty plain, isn't it? Pretty plain. And I want to make a point here about we overlook the fields close by to us to labor in faraway fields. Praise the Lord for missionaries. I am a fourth-generation Seventh-day Adventist Korean. My great-grandfather was the second-ever ordained Seventh-day Adventist pastor in Korea. My grandfather was the first native Korean to serve as president of the Korean Union Conference. I praise the Lord for overseas missionaries because I am only standing before you today because someone cared enough to get on a boat and go to Korea without knowing the language, without knowing the culture, without knowing anything, but knowing that there were precious souls over there who needed to hear about Jesus. So praise the Lord for overseas missionaries. Yet, what I take from this and what I would say to you is not everyone is called to the same mission field. Some may be called to the overseas field, praise the Lord, and even then you might be called for a season, but then you come home, and there is a mission field close by. And some of us overlook the fields close by to us to labor in faraway fields. If the only place that you're a missionary or if the only place where you tell someone about Jesus is somewhere where you need a passport, then something is dreadfully wrong. So this is part of the, part of the, part of the, um, the interpretation, but she goes on. There has not been the effort made that there should have been made to reach the higher classes. While we are to preach to the poor, 
we are also to present it in its most attractive light to those who have ability and talent and make far more wise, determined, God-fearing efforts than have hitherto been made to win them to the truth. I want to focus on this idea of presenting it in its most attractive light. Just as a simple example, how many of you have ever been invited to an event or a, a function or a gathering that happened during the Sabbath which you would not be comfortable attending? How many of you have ever been invited to something like that? Almost all of you, and some of you need more friends. <laughs> now, sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, sometimes when we're invited to an event like that, but, we, but it's on the Sabbath and we don't think it's appropriate, sometimes we might say something like, oh, you know, I'm really sorry, but I can't make it. Yeah, because I, you know, I, I go to church. Or How does that sound to you? Does that sound like it's most attractive light? No, it's very grim and morose. Yet, that's how many of us talk about our gospel. Now, I have a friend who is one of the most talented violinists I've ever performed with. I'm a business executive today, but in a former life, I, my bachelor's and master's are in cello performance, and I was a member of the Hong Kong Philharmonic. And so I have a lot of friends in the musical realm as well. And so one of my friends from my undergraduate years... She is a, a Yale, Eastman, and Juilliard-trained uh, violinist. And so she's very talented. And so I hadn't seen her in about 15 years, but my business travels took me to the city where she lives. And so I, I decided to reach out and say, hey, uh, I'm going to be in your neighborhood. Would you, would you like to? Would you be available to get together for, uh, for dinner? And so she agreed, and we reconnected. And we somehow started to get onto spiritual topics. And we'll talk about how that happens because it doesn't happen by accident. And so we got onto spiritual topics and uh, she was expressing to me how she really didn't grow up with any background in, in faith and how confused she was growing up about God and spiritual things, but how she really wishes that she had knowledge of, of God and who he is. And so I asked her, well, why do you, why, why do you wish that? Why, why is that an attractive proposition for you. And she said to me, I think there's so many potential benefits to knowing about spiritual things. For example, David, did you know that the Jews take one day off per week <laughs> and they completely disconnect from their day-to-day? -day? Did, David, did you know that? That sounds like such a wonderful concept. It's very attractive. So my, my friend, who's not a believer, just told me, she just presented the Sabbath to me in its most attractive light. We need to present our gospel in its most attractive light. Now, there are two problems, potential problems here. One is maybe you just don't, have never thought about what packaging our gospel sounds like in its most attractive light. That's a possibility. And there's another possibility, which is maybe you don't find our gospel very attractive. So you need to think about which problem you have. But we need to be uh, presenting it in its most attractive light. She goes on. She says that 
W3s may look like they're okay, but they are soul burdened and they need personal effort. We talk and write much of the neglected poor. Should not some attention also be given to the neglected rich? What a powerful phrase, the neglected rich. Many look upon this class as hopeless. Thousands of wealthy men have gone to their graves unwarned because they have been judged by appearance as, and passed by as hopeless subjects. But as indifferent as they may appear, I have been shown that most of this class are soul burdened. There are thousands of rich men who are starving for spiritual food. Many in official life feel their need for something which they have not. Few among them go to church for they feel they receive no benefit. The teaching they hear does not touch the soul. Shall we make no personal effort on their behalf? I was at a funeral for a uh, colleague of mine at work. His father had passed away. And so there were a lot of people, my coworkers, at this funeral. And one of the good things about funerals when it comes to connecting with others around spiritual things is that one, you're already in a setting that is conducive to thinking about the bigger picture. And two, there's a lot of time where you're just milling around while the, uh, the receiving line and things are happening. And so one of my colleagues asked me, um, uh, David, so what do you guys, what do you and your family do for fun? What does David Kim do for fun? Just making small talk. So I said to him, well, uh, when it comes to uh, free time, what little I have, uh, I, I really focus it on two things. One is my family, and two is on my faith. And he said, I love family activities. What did he not mention? The faith. The faith. All right, so we're kind of jumping ahead to the spiritual conversations bit here, but I'm going to infiltrate it because we have limited time. So I just learned that he is not interested in talking about my faith. So make a note of that. So we start talking about fa uh, family and what we like to do, and he has kids and I have kids, et cetera, et cetera. And then at a certain point of the conversation, I brought it back and I said, hey, you know, we've talked about family, but uh, do you have any faith that you practice? That's quite a normal conversation because I had said family and faith. We talked about family, and now any reasonable structured conversation would now turn to faith. So I said, Do you, is there any faith you practice? And he said, no, I'm an atheist. And then things got very awkward and I stopped talking to him. <laughs> That's not really what happened. <laughs> but you might have been thinking, yeah, that's exactly what happens when that happens. So, um, so, I said, so he said, I'm an atheist. And I said to him, oh, why are you an atheist? I just asked him. And he said, well, because I believe in science and evolution and creation really just doesn't fit that and blah, blah. So we were talking about that for a while. And then the woman, another colleague of mine sitting to my right, uh, she must have heard something. She turns to us and said, hey, guys, what are you guys talking about? And I said, oh, we're, we're talking about uh, what we like to do on the weekend and the theory of origins. <laughs> and then she immediately said, oh, well, I, I'm an atheist. Now, this woman is a PhD in astrophysics from an Ivy League school. So she's literally a rocket scientist. So very well-educated, uh, very sharp about these kinds of things. So she said, oh, well, I'm an atheist. So what did I say? 
why are you an atheist? You guys are smart, which is a good thing because this is a compressed program. Uh, but you'll pick it up. So I said, why are you an atheist? And she said, oh, well, you know my background, David. I'm a, I'm a PhD in astrophysics. I'm a scientist, and I believe in evolution. And then she said something that completely made my jaw drop, uh, metaphorically speaking. She said, but I often wish that there were a God. So what did I say next? Why do you wish that there were a God? That's good, because sometimes when I give this seminar, they say, you said there is a God. <laughs> See, as Adventists, because we have the truth, the truth, whether you're Seventh-day Adventist or whether you're whatever, people who have the truth or think they have the truth, they tend to like to tell you so. And we fall into that trap all the time. We always think we need to tell people things. But it's often better to just ask them why they think what they think. And so I asked her, so why, are you, uh, why, why, are you, uh, why do you wish that there were a God? That's a very unusual statement. And she said two things. The first thing she said is, because I am an astrophysicist, I'm a PhD in astrophysics, and I see how finely calibrated the universe is. And it is very difficult to explain without some sort of higher power. I didn't tell her that. Now, that is one of the classic arguments that we make. But I like it much better when my atheist friend tells me <laughs> the argument. And so the PhD in astrophysics from Ivy League school is telling me that it's hard to explain the universe without a god. Point one. Point two, she said, and... I think that if there were a God, I wouldn't feel so lonely. These people are soul burdened. Another story. Do you like these stories? I know we're kind of running short on time, but I'm going to tell you another story if that's okay. I was sitting next to an a, a older gentleman on a first-class flight, and uh, he was flying from Philadelphia to Los Angeles. We were both flying from Philadelphia to Los Angeles. And uh, we're making chit-chat, what do you do, coming or going, business or pleasure, et cetera, et cetera. And, he's, and he said, well, he was attending a, a conference in Philadelphia, and he's going home. Oh, what kind of conference? Uh, a, a, a psychology conference is what he said. Oh, really? So what is your profession? I'm a psychotherapist. Oh, you're a psychotherapist. Well, where's your practice? Hollywood. I was sitting next to a, a psychotherapist from Hollywood, and you can only imagine what his practice must be like. So I'm sitting next to a psychotherapist from Hollywood, and we we're making chit-chat. And at a certain point, I asked him a question. And the question I asked him was, I'd like your professional opinion on something that I've read. I've read that it can be beneficial for someone's mental health if they have a belief in God. And without hesitating, the man said, well, I agree with that. I said, oh, interesting. So you agree with that. Well, why, why do you agree with that? And he said, well, first of all, I'm an atheist. <laughs> so we have an atheist psychotherapist telling me that it's good to have a belief in God for your mental health. It is much easier to argue with people when they're actually making the argument for you. This doesn't happen by accident, by the way. And so 
he's telling me that, uh, that it's good. So I said, well, what's good about it? Why do you think it's good? And then he paused, because I don't think anyone had ever asked him that question before. And after a few seconds, he said, well, I think there are many benefits. For example, for example, if you believe in God, you're never, you're never alone because um, you can always check in with God through prayer. But if you're an atheist, unless you are literally with someone else, you are always alone. These people are soul burdened. They need God. They need Jesus. The other thing I want to share with you here is they feel they receive no benefit from church and the teaching they hear does not touch the soul. We really need to think about how we package our message in a way that can relate to these people. It's, it's like they speak a different language and they have a different culture. We're all speaking English. The words are all found in the same dictionary, but the ones they use and the ways they put them together and even what they mean are very different. Furthermore, as Adventists, we speak Adventese. <laughs> and oftentimes our preachers are preaching in Adventese. And there are many unspoken assumptions and premises that they just blow right through, which is fine if you're talking to an Adventist crowd who all speak Adventese. But if you are speaking Adventese and someone walks in who speaks W3 English, it does not connect. It does not connect. And so we really need to think carefully about this. Now, those who belong to the higher ranks of society are to be sought out with tender affection and brotherly regard. Men in business life in high positions of trust, men with large inventive faculties and scientific insight, men of genius, teachers of the gospel whose minds have not been called to the special truths for this time. These should be the what? First. These should be the first, not second, not third, not last. First to hear the call. To them, the invitation must be given. They should be the first. I think it's suffice to say they are nowhere near the top of our list as a people. She goes on. In the history of men, we learn how dangerous is prosperity. Prayers are often requested for men and women in affliction. And this is as it should be. But the most earnest prayers should be solicited for those who are placed in a prosperous position. These men are in the greatest danger of losing their soul. The first to hear the call, the most earnest prayers. And what are we doing? Lord, have mercy. Now, why are we doing, that? Why are we doing things the way we do it? Well, she says it's out of fear and lack of faith. There are intelligent men and women whom we are afraid to work for, fearing repulse. But earnest efforts should be made for the higher classes, coming close to their hearts, visiting them, and using special wisdom to win them to the truth. There should be no pushing, no sharp contention, 
but leading their minds out to investigate. You've been getting a sense of this from my anecdotes, but this is so important. No pushing, no contention, leading their minds out to investigate. This is a critical point with this group. And then she says, we are afraid to work for fearing repulse because we'll be rejected. One of the reasons why efforts have not heretofore been made for the higher classes as I have presented before you is a lack of faith and real courage in God. To the extent our church and we as individuals are not addressing this group, it is because of a lack of faith and courage in God. Lord have mercy. Now, W3s do require a different approach. The intelligent, the refined, are altogether too much passed by. The hook is not baited to catch this class. I love that metaphor, hook and baited. And we'll, we'll learn more about this. And ways and methods are not prayerfully devised to reach them with truth that is able to make them wise unto salvation. Most generally, the fashionable, the wealthy, the proud understand by experience that happiness is not to be secured by the amount of money that they possess or by costly edifices and ornamental furniture and pictures. They want something they have not, but this class are attracted towards each other and it is hard to find access to them. The rich left alone without any effort to save them become shut up more and more to their own ideas. Their own train of thoughts and associations lose eternity out of their reckoning. They grow more proud and selfish, hard-hearted and unimpressible, suspicious that everyone wants to get money. Access is a huge issue. And any of you here who has access to the wealthy world and well-educated, whether it's because you're at school, whether it's because of the neighborhood you live in, whether it's because of the work that you do, whatever the access it is that you have, you need to be a missionary to this group. We cannot reach this group without you who have access, taking it upon yourself to actually reach these people. It will not happen any other way. The second thing I want to mention here is they get shut up more and more to their own ideas. I was at a dinner party for, thrown by a partner at my firm, my former firm, actually the one that Cynthia works at and that I used to work at. Uh, it was a, um, a party, a dinner party, and I had the good fortune to sit across the table from the partner and his wife. Now, this was before my heart conversion, so I'm going to ask you to cut me some slack. So the conversation somehow, I don't even know how it got there, but somehow it got down to talking about Southerners and rednecks. Now, mind you, I was in Silicon Valley at the time. So they don't like Southerners and rednecks out there. It's not a compliment. So she was talking about Southerners and rednecks and how stupid they are. In fact, they believe in the Bible and that God actually created in six days. What did I do? What did I say? I said nothing. And I just smiled and nodded. Now you have to have mercy on me because this, is, this was before my heart conversion. But here is my point. No one else said anything. And she was in her own echo chamber about her own ideas. Each of us has access to these people and you can become a voice. You can be 
you are probably the only Seventh-day Adventist they know. You are probably the only person who could reach them with the gospel. And without you, they will become more and more shut up, closed in with their own ideas in their own echo chamber. How do we reach these people? Some will ask, can we not reach them with publications? There are many who cannot be reached in this way. It is personal effort that they need. It is by no casual, accidental touch that the wealthy, world-loving, world-worshipping souls can be drawn to Christ. These persons are often the most difficult of access. Personal effort must be put forth for them by men and women imbued with the missionary spirit, those who will not fail or be discouraged. So, I believe in the publication ministry. I believe in literature evangelism. Our traditional forms have stood the test of time, and there is absolutely a place for them. Amen? David Kim is not saying, don't use publications. But what I am saying is, they will tend not to work with this group, specifically. Every time, I have used literature, DVDs, websites, pamphlets, glow. I've used these things probably over a dozen times with W3s in my sphere of influence, and not one time has it led to a positive outcome. Most of the time, it shuts down the discussion. Now, I don't know exactly why this is, but I have a belief. And that belief is this. When someone is watching a static piece of video or a static piece of literature, and they read something or hear something that doesn't quite sit right with them, it is very easy for them to just turn it off, close it, put it away. Now, if I am in personal effort, if I am sitting across the table from them, presenting the gospel, and we hit a topic or an idea that doesn't sit right with them, and I can see it in their eyes and see it in their body language, he, doesn't, he or she does not have the luxury of turning me off or putting me away. And I can see that. I can say, oh, I, 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 how's that feel to you? What are you thinking right now? And then he or she will tell me their objection. And then I can address it in the moment. And so that is why. Because these people are smart. They think fast. They're critical thinkers. They're data-oriented. They can think of more objections in one, you know, in one topic. I mean, they can think of all the objections. And you need to be there to tear down the objection as soon as they build it up. And get it before it becomes a wall. And that's why I believe that these static forms of evangelism tend not to work with this group. And this is not my opinion. This is Spirit of Prophecy speaking with us about this topic. So how do we get to these people? We must be in the world, but not of the world. While he ministered to the poor, Jesus studied also, to find ways of reaching the rich, he sought the acquaintance. He sought out the acquaintance of the wealthy and cultured Pharisee, the Jewish nobleman, and the Roman ruler. He accepted their invitations. 
He attended their feasts. He made himself familiar with their interests and occupations that he might gain access to their hearts and reveal to them the imperishable riches. This is such a mind-blowing quotation for me, and I hope for you. How are we supposed to reach these people if we're not among them in some way, shape, or form? Sometimes people feel guilty, especially if you have means, feel guilty. Well, I live in a pretty nice neighborhood. I have a pretty nice house. I have a nice car. I go on nice vacations. I play or partake in expensive sports that require greens fees or lift tickets. And I'm sure you've heard people, maybe from the pulpit, saying, those are a waste of time. We don't have time to be recreating like that. We need to do the work. And I agree. If your purpose in having those things is to build up yourself and enjoy your own life, then I absolutely agree. But this ministry, this line of thought, opens up a whole new dimension on this idea of how you spend your money and how you live your life. Because when I, have, when I live in my house, when I go on my vacations, when I have my recreational activities, I am accepting their invitations, I am attending their feasts, I am making myself familiar with their interests and occupations that I might gain access to their hearts and reveal to them the imperishable riches. Sometimes people, you know, let me give you a thought experiment. If someone was trying to reach a rural village in China, would it work better to live in that village in a house that looked just like their houses, eat their food, uh, uh, you know, do the things that they do on a day-to-day -day basis in that village? Or would it be better to live in Beijing, stay at the Marriott, and then drive or fly in on a helicopter two days a week? Which one would be more effective? The first one, of course. Living in the village, being amongst the people. Well, when I live in my cul-de-sac, I am living in the village. When I go on my vacation, I am living in the village. I need to make myself familiar with their interests and occupations that I might gain access to their hearts and reveal to them imperishable riches. So, the love of money is absolutely a root of all kinds of evil. But if you're not doing it for the money, it can be a vehicle for great good for the kingdom. We have 10 more minutes left, so I'm going to keep going here. How do we reach the W3 class? Hopefully you care. Do, does, do, you, do you guys care about the W3s now? Raise your hand if you care. All right, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Uh, a few of you don't care, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. How do we reach these people? The overall framework is it starts with your heart conversion. You must be heart converted. Second, you experience life transformation because of your heart conversion and your walk with the Lord. Third is, with your life transformed, you can start attracting spiritual interests. And of those spiritual interests, some of them will actually be people you study with. Some will actually be interested in studying with you. 
And then among those, a few, uh, a subset of those, you'll win their soul. And as you cooperate with the Lord in winning their soul, it deepens your own heart conversion and the cycle continues. Start, heart conversion is critical. You must be born again of the Spirit. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. And the Spirit will make you a witness. That's what Jesus told the disciples before he went to heaven. And the implications are, you can do the math. If you are heart converted, you will be a witness. But the contrapositive of any true statement is also true. Therefore, if you are not a witness, you are not heart converted. And so, your witness is a barometer of your salvation. Now, some of you may be sitting there feeling very uncomfortable, and to you I say, praise the Lord. Because now you know. Now you know that the fact that you don't like witnessing, it's not because you're a bad person per se, but it's because you're not heart converted. And once you know you're not heart converted, you can actually take action around that. Life transformation. Why does this matter? First of all, because sin separates you from God. And we have Isaiah 59, verse 1 and 2, which tells us that sin separates us from God. That's one reason why it matters. But a second reason why it matters is it testifies to the awesomeness of God. When your life is transformed, it, it shows people what God is like. And so whether it's your family life, whether it's the way you pursue your career or your work, whether it's your fitness, uh, your health, whether it's uh, your acts of service and the way you engage with your community, and generally the fruit of the Spirit. All of these things testify to how awesome God is. And that's the second reason why life transformation matters. But most on point with this topic, it gives you, the third reason is it gives you credibility to share the gospel with the W3s. Would you take stop smoking advice from this doctor? And for those of you in the back who maybe can't see, this is an old-school picture of a physician holding a cigarette saying, this is just what the doctor ordered, you know, back in the day when they said smoking was good for you. Of course, you would never take smoking and stop smoking advice from this doctor. That is why life transformation matters so much. Because if your life is not in the process of being transformed, then why would anyone care to hear what you have to say? Because your God does not have the power to transform your life. So the question is, is would your W3 friend or acquaintance or coworker or neighbor, would they want to be like you? Whether it's workers, the way you pursue excellence in your work or your school, whether it's your family life, your health, your fitness, your hobbies, your interests, your temperament, your personality, are you a nice person? Do people like you? I hope, they, I hope they do. Social and communication skills, EQ, emotional intelligence, your spiritual or religious practice. There's a whole list of things. When you reflect on this question, would your W3 friends want to be like you? There's a woman uh, who is on the board of my son's youth orchestra. And every year, this youth orchestra has a retreat, and parents volunteer to chaperone. And so I've had spiritual conversations with this woman in the past, one or two, not, not too many. And, uh, but, but this year, this is the third year I've gone, this year, we were talking, and just out of the blue, she says to me, David, you know, I really like you. This is a woman I see once a year for the last 
three, three years, so I've seen her a total of three times. She says, David, I really like you. I said, oh, well, thank you, but why do you like me? <laughs> That's inconceivable. And she said, I just love your spirituality. And now this is not about puffing me up. I'm just trying to give you an example of would your W3 friend want to be like you? I have a, a peer of mine, another senior executive at my company. We were waiting at an airport for a flight that was delayed. And uh, we were just chit-chatting and talking. And um, uh, he asked me, I had, I had just uh, come back from a, uh, I went to Indonesia to speak at the ASI meeting in Asia out there. And my whole department knew that I was taking a week off to go to Asia, to Indonesia, to speak at a church meeting out there. And he said to me, David, you know, one thing I really like about you is just how seriously you take your faith. It's, it's wonderful. I really like seeing that. Even your faith can be attractive to someone. Even your faith. Shocking, isn't it? But would your W3 friend want to be like you? Think about this question. Because we must be living epistles. In order to reach these classes, believers themselves must be living epistles, known and read of all men. We have to be living the message. And if we're not living the message, and if we're not on our way towards living that message, I understand, we all know, that sanctification is a work of a lifetime. So it's not about being at a destination. But if you're not on a path that has visible fruit, that someone who works with you or sees you often can't see, that's a problem. Now, how do I engage in spiritual conversations? We've been touching on this bit by bit, and I have three minutes left, so I'm going to go fast. Fly fishermen. The thing about fly fishermen is that they're always casting. They're always casting with the right bait, and they're looking for hungry fish. This person is not trying to catch fish that are not hungry. As opposed to these people. This is industrialized net fishing. They just drag the net, and they pull whatever's inside into the boat, and then they club them over the head and send them downstairs to the hull where the processing plant is. This is not what we're doing. We are not looking for hungry, uh, fish who are not hungry. We're not trying to pull people into the boat by force. We are trying to put bait out there, allowing the hungry fish to respond. Another metaphor, walking through an orchard, when you are picking fruit, you look at the fruit, you smell the fruit, you tug on the fruit gently to know whether it is ripe. We're not doing this industrialized farming where you shake the trees so all the apples fall down whether they're ripe or not and then you gather them up. Because if you pick a fruit before it's ripe, it will never become ripe. And so it's important, critical with this group to look for the signs of ripeness, look for the signs of hungriness, hunger, hungriness is not a word, hunger, and only then engage them in a way that might lead to Bible studies or, or something like that. But you always have to put the bait out. And you always have to tug the fruit and see if there might be some potential there. And that's what we mean by spiritual conversations. And things like your personal devotional life, things you read, 
uh, church activities, events and trips, media consumption. These can all be the foundation of spiritual conversations. I'll just give you one example because we're short on time. Uh, how many of you were asked by a coworker or a fellow student or wherever you're from, hey, what are you doing for the holidays? Anyone get asked that question? All right, about a third of you were asked that question. The rest of you don't have friends? <laughs> it's a very normal question, is it not? What are you doing for the holidays? So my answer is, oh, well, I'm going down to a conference that's put on by my church, and we're going to Houston. And then the, uh, the hungry fish says, oh, really, a church conference. What, what are you guys going to talk about down there? The fish that's not hungry says, oh, Houston, that'll be warm. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? You, I put the bait out there, and then I allow the person to respond to some piece of what I said. And then by doing that, I know where their head is at, or I have a suggestion for where their head is at, whether they're hungry or not, and whether we could proceed in the conversation. That's what we mean by spiritual conversations. So we have a whole list here of actual questions that I've been asked that have led to spiritual conversations or even Bible studies. How was your weekend? That leads to a spiritual conversation. Oh, I went to church. Oh, really? Where do you go to church? Uh, vacation plans. Oh, I talked to you about that one. What are you doing for the holidays? How'd you meet your wife? I met at church. How'd you meet your wife? Oh, we met at a bar. <laughs> do you still play the cello? Well, I do still play the cello a little bit. I, I've played actually on a couple albums by an independent Christian singer-songwriter. Oh, really? Well, what were those albums? Well, one was original music based on the book of Revelation. It's called The Lamb Wins. And the other one is a book of orig uh, 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 original music based on the book of Daniel. And it's called The King Dreams. Oh, really? That's really interesting. I mean, the book of Daniel, that's, uh, and that's really scary stuff. I said, you know, it, it's, it, it can be intimidating, but hey, you know, I have a copy. Would you like a copy of the CD that I played on? No one has ever turned me down. And I've had a number of people tell me how much they love the music, but maybe they're being nice. Actually, it's fabulous. You should check it out. Um, what do you do for fun? I had that example earlier. How are you guys settling into the area? Oh, well, it's good, and we found a church. Why do you homeschool? Why, how do your kids get socialization? Uh, well, I homeschool because, well, there's so much scary stuff that happens in schools these days. I've never had one person disagree with me. And how do your kids get socialization? Well, a bunch of things, but one of the things is we have a church. How do you manage your ambition versus your desire for work-life balance? Well, you know, you have to keep your priorities straight, and you have to... Uh, focus on the right things, but you know, the most important thing that helps me with this issue is my prayer life. Do you have any advice for how to be successful at work? Well, you know, there's a lot of things you can do, but one of the most important things for me and helping me be successful at work is, is my prayer life. And in fact, this one, both of those last two questions led directly, directly to personal Bible studies with individuals at my work. By the way, I've had the privilege of probably studying with half a dozen uh, or more, you know, maybe six or seven people over the last few years. Remember, this is a one-by-one-by-one-by-one by one by one work. This is not a fill-the-stadiums type of work. That's a lot. At any given time, I have, um, right now I have two regular Bible studies per week uh, with coworkers. I've had as many as four. That was too many. I just couldn't manage the schedule on all of that. But here's the point. 
Except for my very first one, every single person I've studied with has asked me to study with them. They've asked me to study with them. Now, would you like people to come up to you and ask you to study with them? That would be nice, wouldn't it? Again, it's a lot easier when you don't have to do any arm twisting. You're not trying to guilt trip them into taking Bible studies with you. They're, in fact, wanting to study with you because they're actually interested. It's wonderful. And so over time, you know thousands of people. You have spiritual conversations that are few or many, light or deep. You have hundreds of spirit. I have a dozen spiritual conversations of the nature that I just mentioned uh, on a weekly basis. And over time, that accumulates, and a few of those people become actual Bible studies. And of those people, a few of them become converts. And that's how this works. Now, I've given you the one-hour session. There's a three-hour session that I do at churches over a weekend. But then there's a two-day session that we're doing right after GYC. We're starting on Sunday afternoon, running into the evening, and then all day Monday into the evening. We have a few spots left, a handful of spots left. So if any of you are staying in town or if you're local and you'd like to go deeper into this methodology, and we're actually going to be hands-on and practice and uh, do all kinds of things to give you confidence of how to do this, then Ty Gibson and I would love to, and Cynthia would love to see you join us. So if this is something that you might be interested in, there is a fee uh, because hotel rooms and catering don't come free. There's no free lunch. But there is a fee. But if you're local or you think you can change your travel plans, see Cynthia up here. She'd be happy to talk with you about it. We have a flyer that will give you more detail. And I will end with this. Bringing Christ into the ordinary business of life is difficult, but it is what the Lord requires. It, ca- it requires more grace, more stern discipline of character to work for God in the capacity of mechanic, merchant, lawyer, or farmer, carrying the precepts of Christianity into the ordinary business of life than to labor as an acknowledged missionary in the open field. It requires a strong spiritual nerve to bring religion into the workshop and the business office, sanctifying the details of everyday life and ordering every transaction according to the standard of God's word. But this is what the Lord requires. We are not all called to be professional ministers. We are not all called to be professional Bible workers or anything of that sort. In fact, the people I can reach cannot be reached by those people. And there are people in each of your lives who can only be reached by you. And my appeal to you this day is, will you take up this challenge? Will you take up this challenge? If you want to know more, you can, I mentioned the training. You can also go to Audioverse. And you'll find the three-hour version of my seminar on Audioverse. Just search David Kim, and you'll find it there. But for any of you who have access to this group, I plead with you, make this your mission field. And you don't have to be a W3. You can be someone who works with W3s. Maybe you're not a W3 yourself. But if you have access to these people, the Lord can use you. And so with that, let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you have called us to minister to this group. You have told us that they should be our first priority, yet that they are neglected. Let it no longer be so.
I pray, Lord, that someone in this room would have had their heart touched and have their mind activated to employ some of these methods, to learn more, and to gain the faith and courage in you, Lord, to become a missionary to the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated. We thank you, Lord, for the mercy you've shown each of us. We thank you, Lord, for the life transformation that you are working in each of us. And Lord, we pray that this life transformation might show the world and the W3s in our sphere of influence. Show them what an awesome God you are. We pray this in the powerful and precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, When All Has Been Heard, in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.